Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say, you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, we talk about The Last Starfighter also. So, I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us at Happy Hour Flicks, anywhere podcasts are found. So I literally had to meet this guy in Williamsburg uh, where he gave me like a black plastic full of $10,000. Like, I'm wow. not joking. And then I had to go to the shady like mom and pop Mexican restaurant and check the bathroom for the cameras and sit on the on the on the on the toilet and count the cash. It was just I've had done everything for this movie. This is the, the independent, independent, independent filmmaker's guide from Framework Productions. Framework Framework Productions. On IFG, we talk about independent film from development through delivery. By featuring discussions with creators and collaborators about their experiences, we form a roadmap to help you have the most success with your projects. Premiering your film at a top-tier film festival is often at the heart of turning a great film into a successful one. Today, we talk with the director and cinematographer of the film I'll Meet You There about their experience creating a feature that was over a decade in the making, getting it into the South by Southwest Film Festival, preparing for its world premiere there, and then ultimately being canceled due to the COVID outbreak. Iram has a big whiteboard on her wall and we graphed out the camera style from act one all the way through. And this character was handheld and this character was gonna be smooth. And then at a certain point they intersect and then they switch. That's Anthony Coons, cinematographer for the film, I'll Meet You There. You know, people say everything works out for a reason, but I, I don't know, I don't really say that. I think that we as human beings have a lot more adaptability than we give ourselves credit for. And that's Aram Parveen Bilal, the writer and director. This film has been uh, very personal. It was the first script I wrote in film school back in 2000, and uh, I started writing this in December 2006. I'm your host, Stephen Pierce. That's how personal it was. Um, it obviously has had very many iterations. Um, at that point, it was very much sort of like starting with the idea of what is what does it feel like to be a Muslim cop in a post 9-11 world? Um, Cause I went to this community event and I saw this um, actually very Orthodox, like Muslim, he had a beard and, but he was wearing a cop uniform and for whatever reason in my head, I being Muslim was like, wait a minute, what? Even though there's, he should be able to have both identities without question. And so that just kept lingering in my brain. And then, you know, um, the idea of sort of get, and then post 9-11, there was like a huge, before then, it was like, you know, you being Muslim was just part of your identity. But after post 9-11, uh, I felt like everybody just kind of like put a spotlight in me. I was like, well, wait, wait a minute. What kind of Muslim are you? And suddenly you had to be like, okay, well, I'm conservative. I'm, I'm liberal. I'm centrist. You just had to like look inward and figure out. And so there was, so to speak, some sort of a, um, a Protestant movement in Islam where people were either going becoming extremely conservative and some people were extremely sort of reclaiming and trying to be liberal. And in that process within my family, there was a lot of people. So my sister who taught me how to dance started thinking dancing was sinful. 
And so that was the other element. So there was a lot of things that I was trying to deal with in the story and it was very personal and it just kept, and then after a while I was just so done with like the 9-11 narrative. And so it just kept, and so I would keep shoving it away, but it would keep winning. I would keep sort of applying to these like writers labs, directors labs and keep winning and keep coming. And so at a certain point, actually my second feature, Anthony and I shot that together and I was, and then after that I was like, I, okay, I got to make this or I, you know, or not. And then it was impossible because it was so specific. It was so hard to get funding for it. And so that was sort of the journey. But what is the, what is the, just the basic, like the plot for people who haven't seen the film? Um, so the film is about a single father, a Muslim cop in Chicago. He's a single father to a teenage ballerina who is headed to Juilliard. She's a senior in high school. And it's about what happens 10 minutes into the film when the estranged grandfather shows up unannounced from Pakistan. And uh, this coincides with the cop being asked by his boss to go undercover in a community mosque. And since this cop has sort of not been, you know, uh, observant of religion, he hasn't been to the mosque in forever. And so he uses his dad as a way to re-enter the mosque. And it's about sort of the ripple effects of personal and professional life since uh, through that. And um, it's really at the core of it about like, how do you stay true to yourself and your beliefs and your ideologies and still belong to a community? Yeah, it sounds like the story overall sits at this kind of really interesting crossroads for you as a person, like both kind of dealing with your identity um, and the identity of Muslims in America post 9-11 and also your personal identity and like um, um, like background with dance and the, the history with your sister, right? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very personal uh, story and it's sort of, cradled in uh, a specific time in the politics of this country. But I guess that time stretches because this film has been timely for 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, you could talk, I'm sure you could talk forever about that. And I'd love to honestly listen to you talk about it because every time it, people's perspectives in America, I think that's one of the things you said uh, really affected me was like, this is that you keep getting put into this kind of category of being a foreign film. Like whenever, you know, sales people would even talk to you or like a packaging agent, they'd want to make it, you know, they'd want to package it for, you know, uh, the Asian region. And you know, like, this is a strictly American film, like the, the, right. Yes, absolutely. And so that is the problem is I think we view as, we view race and color. I mean, this is the, the time to be talking about it, I guess, as such a, um, as such an indicative of how American you are. And I have really felt that in terms of the financing and the production of this film and now in the distribution phase of it. Um, but, you know, I, and, and actually speaking of timely, I never thought about the cop angle, but like in the past, like three weeks, four weeks, people have been reaching out to me and I was like, oh my God, I forgot. Cause I'm so lost in the character and what they're doing. Like I forget that Majid's wearing a cop outfit and that there is brutality in the film. You know, I would never have thought, obviously it's from a different uh, context, it's not an African-American uh, angle of things, but it's just interesting, the timeliness of sort of racial politics in this country, I guess, sadly is... is so what did you, I mean, what have you experienced as far as like trying to get distribution for the film and as far as financing the film that made this particularly difficult? I'll be very blunt. Um, the, the Caucasian characters are, are, are not very meaty. Um, we should try and get pre-sales in India. Why? Because the lead guy's skin color is brown. Like, A, he's Pakistani. <laughs> Indians are not going to touch with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> B, this film has nothing to do with sort of South Asian culture, minus sort of the, the music and the clothes and whatever. Like, it is very, it's a very specific immigrant experience, you know? So they would just say things like that. Oh, we should try and get pre-sales from India. And I'm just like, what? This is the worst way to go about this. This makes no sense. You're obviously going to get a no. And they were just trying to force it through cookie-cutter 
uh, you know, like financing models that agencies follow. And so I was trying to, this was the film I was going to try and make with the right budget. And I, I let them do their thing for a year and a half. And then I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to go make it for half the money. And we shot it in 19 days. And so that, that's, that's how we had to do it because nobody was understanding. And then now in distribution phase, same issue, which is that, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I feel like my immigrant story is how my art is also sort of suffering where I'm never considered Pakistani enough or American enough. And so my projects are not considered American enough or Pakistani enough. And so because we have very sort of straight sort of verticals for all of these, I feel like these films fall into the cracks um, because people are not judging films by the value of the story, right? They're judging films. I mean, in general, I mean, salespeople and acquisition people, they're judging things in terms of these wide pots and labels. So it's then it's a, it's a job of having even better sort of sales agents and marketers who can say, okay, no, this is how you view this. Um, and so we're hoping, I mean, we're hoping we have a couple of offers, as I said, and, uh, I mean, it's great in this climate to even have offers is great, but I'm trying to go for something bigger and better for the cast and the crew after having spent so much time on this movie. Yeah, Anthony, what's your approach whenever you have 15, 18 days, you're shooting 120 pages? Um, like, how, what's your approach to try and achieve that visually? Um, well, the thing I think that really helped us, especially on this film, was Iram is very giving with her time in pre-production. And so we were able to, I, I can't even guess how many drafts of the shot list we did. But we had a working document up until production. And then the night before each day, we would go over the shot list for that coming day and the next day after that and rewrite them in these little notebooks. And I still have mine and I carry it with me in my belt. Um, and we would write down the shots all over again. And it helped us um, adjust that plan based on location, based on time. and really helped internalize that shot list so that there wasn't a lot of double checking on set necessary. Like we both knew what was next. And that really, really helps when you have that level of, of intense communication to be able to move quickly and efficiently. How do you guys go about developing your shot list? Is it, uh, do you, does it, who says like, this is what I want or Aram, are you, you've mostly focused on the performance and letting, you know, Anthony take the lead on the visuals. So poor Anthony, he actually even had to share an Airbnb with me. <laughs> That was mostly because of lack of budget, but I think it worked really well because we were exhausted and we would just like roll into like the living room couch and, and do these shot lists. So part of the difficulty of making this film was that we raised the money and lost it twice. So I had my heads of departments with me two years or a year and a half to two years before we actually shot the movie. So Anthony and I, one summer, we were both like, you know, struggling artists in LA. And I said, hey, what do you say? Let's just break the the film down. We didn't have, we didn't know when we were going to make this movie or anything. So we actually shot listed the entire film um, before having any locations or anything or even a plan of production. So how that works is I literally go by the scenes and I just throw a document together to him. And then he is way more organized than I am. So he will color code and like sort of organize it in a certain way. Then we'll meet together. There were a couple of times that he would drive down uh, early in the morning because we were trying to battle traffic because I live on the west side, he lives on the east side, and I would get burritos and we would just sit and watch movies. You know, general movies I want him to have. And he would ask me specifically, he'd be like, specifically, what do you want? I was like, there's no specifics. I just want this to be in your memory, you know, your, in your arsenal years ahead of, you know, just us filming. And then one thing that I kept telling him as a director, I feel like I, I, I try and identify 
um, you know, what are the things I really want to work on? And I think transitions have in my first feature, my earlier work were a challenge. So I kept pushing for transitions. And then we, we, uh, so we had a shot list document where we had the shot list, but then we also had, we were playing with frame rates and frame rates and shutter speeds. Um, inspired like step printing inspired by Wong Kar Wai's work. And so, cause we had like elements of dance and worship and we would talk about sort of thematics of the characters, thematics between act one, act two, act three, thematics that bleed in, you know, so we had all this lingo. And I remember we were so in it that in set, we would just be spitballing to each other and everybody else would just be like, my script supervisor was like, how long have you guys been working? Because we had to be that fast in order to achieve what we wanted to achieve. And that is the only reason so to answer your question, because I knew he had my back. I literally be like, blah, blah, blah. Three keywords that only he and I can understand. And he's off doing things. And then I'm just with the actors. I totally agree. Um, and the, the shot listing anecdote I said before was, that's like the granular version of it. But yes, we did actually, during that summer, have, uh, Iram has a big whiteboard on her wall. And we graphed out the camera style from act one all the way through and this character was handheld and this character was going to be smooth. And then at a certain point they intersect and then they switch. And it was, it was really nice for me as a visual person to like see a graph. So that was, that was very helpful. Um, and that then informed how everything was shot listed and, and actually captured on set. So do you do that typically? Like you try and break down the characters, you try and try and break down scenes. I've heard it both ways. I'm just curious, you know, why you choose to do the character over the, the scene. Um, well, I think for this movie, it was so much about these two characters more so than it was about plot. So it felt right to me to use that as the, uh, the compass as, as to how it should be shot. Um, the plot obviously is, is important and impacts the characters, but the, um, the emotional journey that they're on, I felt was the spine of the movie. So that's, that's where the inspiration came from. I have never thought of just breaking something based on scenes. I guess what you make sense, what you're saying is, okay, big plot points. Sure. But I always let the characters go because often if you let the characters, it's like writing. If you follow the characters, everything else is going to follow. And in directing as well, if you, if you follow the sort of character's journey, you will automatically like, head to like the handheld or the the jarriness of a scene because the character is feeling that way so if the character informs the film then you are more often than not in the chaos of production you're gonna you're gonna end up falling on the right side of things we didn't tell them that there's a key scene which i won't talk about where we needed people to come in with shoes in the mosque and they were like oh well shoes aren't it's not and i said listen for the authenticity of this scene they can't take their shoes off because they're supposed to disrespect the space that's the intention like it, it doesn't make sense and it's not just that they're disrespecting, they have to come in. And so we had to like put like clean tarp outside and clean all the shoes of these extras. And, you know, it was just all this like complicated stress. Honestly, you know? it sounds like that's really, I love the idea of the, I mean, the pressure you're putting on yourself by picking a production date, locking in with cast and then running into it. I mean, there's something about it that makes you do it. You know, I really think that probably works, but that is a ton of stress you're putting on yourself. I mean, it, it it can push one, uh, you know, a little bit uh, back and forth, but I all, I honestly feel the way indie financing works until and unless you do that, it's just not going to come together. 
I have to ask, I mean, you seem so well versed in indie financing, and that is something that so many people in the indie world have so little, little proclivity with. Like they're so into the art of it, but they don't understand the first thing about how to raise money um, for their film. Well, to be honest, I think that um, my knowledge of financing comes from the necessity. I have not had the privilege that people will raise money for me. And I have not had the privilege that, you know, of having like a rich uncle write me a check. So if I wanted to make movies, I had to figure out how to raise money. That's just sort of how I came up. You know, I, I, I'm the queen of great timing. We graduated in the Great Recession. And now we were, and now we were launching the movie in a pandemic. So clearly with, with, with that sort of, you know, uh, timing behind you, you just have to figure out, you have to be savvy. Um, I mean, you know, just talk to a line producer, you get a couple of line producers, budget your film, and then you figure out what the average is. And then you just start raising money. I mean, and then, you know, sure. If somebody puts X as a budget, you, it's not that you can't make it for 0.75 X or 0.6 X, but you, you know, you just figure it out that way. I mean, I've had stories and these were all meant for Q and A's where I've had to, you know, because even wire transfers from Pakistan were not happening. So I literally had to meet this guy in Williamsburg um, where he gave me like a black plastic full of $10,000. Like, I'm wow. not joking. And then I had to go to the shady, like mom and pop Mexican restaurant and check the bathroom for the cameras and sit on the... On the on the on the toilet and count the cash. It was just I've had done everything for this movie and like and then a week before we were going to shoot and Anthony I was shielding Anthony from this because he was all happy we had gone through the whole shot list with revised and then he looks at me and I'm super stressed and it's the Friday ten days before day one of shoot or eight days and um, our uh, my co producer has sat me down on this beautiful like you know view of the Hudson at sunset and they're sitting me down and they're telling me that um, we only have money for fifteen days of shoot. Um, because there was a certain in-kind uh, deal that we were hoping on that didn't come through. And they're like, so we think you should just shoot great 15 days and then go away and go raise more money and then we'll shoot. And I'm just looking at them and being like, uh, I have a guy in the 70s just flew, flew in from Pakistan. Like, I'm not going to risk like with cast. Like, and it's like, you know, it's inefficient to go away and come back just in terms of the equipment deals and everything you get. So I literally am coming with this. So this is happening right after I went to the shady Brooklyn place to get the money. So I'm really stressed. I come and I get this lowdown and then I come home and I'm processing this when my first AD walks into the door and tells me that she got the dream job from Nigeria and she has to leave. Oh no. <laughs> and this is a first AD who is like a very celebrated independent world. And, and at that point in New York, and I'm just like so happy she's on. And I, it was at a point where I just looked at her and I couldn't even hear. And I said, I said her name, I'm not going to say, and I said, I, I wish you good luck. I just need time right now. I'm sorry. I can't react. And Anthony comes out to do his pasta or whatever. And he's seeing me on the couch and he goes back and I'm just like, I have, I actually said this to you. I don't know if you remember. I said, I, I really want to share this with you, but I just want to shield you from it. So I won't share this with you. <laughs> Steven, I, I think if Yerim wasn't a film director, she would be leading armies because there's, there's something about her confidence and determinism that just is incredibly inspirational and motivates her crew in a really wonderful way. So more power to you. Oh, thank you. And so after that scene, I went into my room and I cried for hours. I cried and I called my mom. This is when I, I figured I hit. And this is the reason I'm saying this is for people listening. It's all about how badly do you want it? I called my mother and this is a woman who saved her retirement in rupees in Pakistan. And I'm calling her and I'm begging her for like 10 grand. 
And I felt so low because I'm like, I'm, I told my mom and I said, I don't know how I'm going to give this back to you, but at this point I need this. Cause it, I literally was charting who, the people I could take loans from. So I called college best friends, my mom, my sister, like people I would never, because I was like, I need to get through the shoot. And in the end, the calculation, by the way, was wrong. We actually had more money than we thought. So whatever, I, I returned some money, but it was the most stretched. I like, I ate, that was one of the worst days of my life. It was so stressful. And you know, and then, like, yeah. Oh, and, then and then you have then, to shoot the movie. Yeah, but then stand on, <laughs> then walk out there and be composed and communicate effectively and not be, oh, you know, condescending and direct well, Thankfully that happened on that Friday. So uh, by the next Thursday, and then we ended up actually having an AD, which we found out later had never AD'd a feature. She told us at the, when we wrapped, but she was incredible. She was the right personality. You know, people say everything works out for a reason, but I, I don't know. I don't really say that. I think that we as human beings have a lot more adaptability than we give ourselves credit for. So what cameras you shoot on, what lenses and why? Um, well, the camera we used was an Airy uh, Alexa SXT, and we got it from Film Independent here in LA. And that was key because that line item was $0. So they like give it to you in kind. Yeah. So this was uh, uh, those early networking. I had gone in to just network, just catch up with somebody there in artist development. I was talking about the trials of the film and she was like, you know, we have a camera. We can just lend it to you if nothing's happening. Cause it was a film independent writers, directors lab project. So I had written it in my notes. I have like the side notes of like when the, when things, and so I reached out and I was like, well, these are our dates. Can you do it? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, well, you need to ship it. And I was like, Anthony, can you ship it? He's like, yeah. So like, this is how it just worked out. <laughs> Yeah. It's too good to be true. I checked it on the plane. It, it flew with me there. That's, um, yeah, but that's we, were, we were lucky that at the time, it was the best Alexa available. Um, we talked about doing a mini, but we wanted to have a 4K finish and that sort of thing. So we, we really lucked out with that. Um, and then the rest of the gear, some of it was mine, um, but the rest of it we got from Adorama in New York. And we shot, uh, we talked about shooting anamorphic, but I was, I was a little worried with the schedule and our lighting package that that wasn't a, a great idea. Maybe not have but, enough lighting output to, to accommodate those, those lenses needs. Well, not only that, but, um, the, the, the likelihood of, I know Iram likes a shallow depth of field and to really make that work with anamorphic, you have to have a crack fo focus puller. And I didn't actually know our first AC, but after working with them, um, Charlie Muentes is his name. He would have nailed anamorphic anyway. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's no, um, not speaking to his skill. He would have, he would have killed it, but I was just afraid that it would slow us down. So we shot spherical on cook S fours and those are probably my favorite lenses, uh, to go to first anyway. Um, and then, um, beyond that, uh, we, we did do a lot of steady cam. We did do a lot of handheld. Um, sadly, yes, we did not have a Fisher dolly, but we didn't really need it. We, we were able to make it work without that with sliders and, and doorways and things like that. And I don't think anybody will know because it isn't the tool. It's how you use it. Right. Exactly. And sometimes it's faster. I mean, the fishers are great, but it takes four people to move it. You know, we have a scene and actually I think my script supervisor, she wanted to do a side by side where Anthony's like pushing these sandbags with the cameras on the sandbags on the floor. Like we did everything. We had these like tiny, like chair dollies. I mean, we were just so gritty. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk a, bit, a little about your post process. Like how did you get into, who did the editing? How did you get to them? Did you do any finishing, mixing, and where did that all happen? 
So all the posts happened in LA and, uh, you know, that money, the in-kind that we lost in the production, I was so pissed with what they put me through. So I made sure, because part of the deal was that they said, oh, you know, we didn't have, we, you, we thought you were going to shoot in LA and now you're in New York. We ended up getting them to basically give us a week at Technicolor of color grading. It was the most incredible week that, you know, Anthony and I just like, we were able to do so many passes that it's an incredible job. Um, so that, that was like the color end of things. But I ended up having an editor, post was hard um, because we ended up having an editor. I was not necessarily in my first uh, pass of it really happy. So I ended up having to hire another editor. And then finally we were able to, you know, sort of, we did a lot of test screenings and we had to adjust. And then I decided we needed a different set of hands just to move it further along. And then we did more test screenings. And then I went to Pakistan again, uh, March last year to then finally on a work in progress, create score that then was informing the edit. And then they were, so they didn't score a final piece. They were creating the tracks as we were going. Um, and um, yeah, and then we did sound. And again, we had issues with sound. So then we had to have like another sound editor. It was a post was, but I was fine. We were taking our time. We were way ahead of our Sundance deadline that we wanted, you know, and then Sundance didn't happen, but then South by did. So everything was perfect. And then we were in competition. So it, it was like, it was going to be the perfect story of this film. Um, but um, yeah, no, so that was post post was like a good, uh, cause when I wrap a film, it's my policy to take a full month off um, because these films are like worse than birthing a child, which I've also done since then. So I can actually say that now. Um, and um, it's uh, I just sleep for like a month. I read books, I sleep. So I, I, I don't even want to, unless it's an editor who will not bug me. I, I just pause post for a month because we weren't in like a hurry to have any deadline. And so we really didn't start post till Jan of 2018. And we were done with the film uh, September or October of 2018, uh, 2019. So, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I don't like to touch things right after I've shot it. I like to let it sit at least for a few weeks. Cause I get, you know, you think coming off set, you know, that exact shot that you want and this sequence will edit with that. And I usually find when you try and build those in the rough sequence anyway, it doesn't usually work the way you imagine it does. So it's better to just approach it like from the philosophy and what you have, you know? I agree. I completely agree. And I've never, I edit as well, but I've never edited my features. I've edited my shorts just because it's just, I'm so married to my features because often, quite often, I'm a writer, director, and I'm producing them that it's just not the best thing. I totally agree. I completely sympathize with that. I think whenever we've directed, a, we've done a few series that I've directed, and I've always felt, I've never felt really good when I edit the episode. Like, it always feels... 80% to me. And I just don't know how to get over that last little hump. So it's so, I mean, having an editor that can just challenge the way you approach something at that stage is so beneficial, at least in my experience. Um, so let's talk a little about South by. So let's, I mean, that had to have been a hell of an exciting day when you got in. I was 39 weeks pregnant and I was sitting and I was going through um, I was just doing some of the final paperwork uh, for my investors because, of course, being the lead producer, I have to do that, too. I was doing an end of the year financial accounting. It was like a very boring day and it was like 4 p.m. And I got this email and I couldn't breathe. I was crying and I couldn't breathe. And I called my husband and he at that point had a pager because he's in this close. He thought my water broke. So he called. So he picks up the phone and I'm like, ah, ah, and he's like, what happened? I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm like, no, no, no. It's good news. It's good news. <laughs> And right then, like uh, Heather Ray, who's an EP in the project, was also copied. And I think she was somewhere in Europe. And she immediately FaceTimed me 
from her bed, like screaming. And then I told, and, but you know, immediately you get a festival and then there's a, my festival advisor was playing politics. She was like, Oh, like she wasn't paying. She was telling me you need to push the others that you want to get into as well and be like, you got this note. So it wasn't even this like, Oh, I accept on it because South by does not tell you what section you're in. So now you're thinking, well, what if a Tribeca or somebody else wants to actually program me in competition? So you kind of use that to follow up with everybody else and stuff. And so that was kind of like, you know, every, everything in this business, I wish we could just like celebrate. There's all this like business side of things, right? And so I couldn't immediately accept it, but I knew we wanted to. I think that was like a Tuesday or something that we found out. And then I, yeah. And then I just, on that Friday, I finally accepted I was just, I just had this feeling. I spoke to a couple of other people and they said, you know, they really do good by their artists. Just go with them. They're a bigger festival. It's like the best thing. Like after Sundance, like that's the best, you know, you can. And so um, I was really happy and I just went with the fate. I went off, I delivered my baby, first child. And then Jan 15th, um, I'm up like with this baby in pain, breastfeeding at like 4 a.m. now. And I get an email saying that you're in competition and I wake my husband off and he's like, what happened again? Like it's freaking competition. And then I literally looked at him and I said, Stephen, this is so, I said, I don't want anything more. This is all I've ever wanted is to be one of these A-list festivals, one of those 10 names in competition in the press. I don't care to win. And I just want to go and celebrate. That's just it. I've reached my dream in terms of independent film world. And I was so happy. I was in cloud nine. It was everything I needed to get through my postpartum. Everything was perfect. We even had like an orientation where I saw like Anthony and our line producer, Josh, and just so happy. We were building our like app and like building all the things and the talks we were going to attend. I had already, despite being sort of like in postpartum, I had had everything ready. I had like a full press junket, after party, party premiere. We were going to be sold out. I'd galvanized the entire crew uh, of South Asians in, in Austin. We had four screenings. I was more than sure we were going to be sold out. It just looked great. I had press. I had a great publicist. Everything looked great. And then That sounds exactly like how you try and approach like a big festival like that to get that push, right? To get the right. buzz. Because it was all about the buzz. I mean, the thing is like the film is what it is. Uh, we are who we are. At the end of the day, all that does is, you know, like the Super Mario jump in the end. <laughs> It just it positions you for a better jump to the flag. That's it. And so you get better like points and everything was ready. And then the Friday, six days before we were supposed to take off. And that week was like hollowing for me. I hadn't really talked to the cast and crew, but I already was like, you know, with Facebook pulling out and this pulling out, like I already was feeling like the dread. And I kept reaching out to my publicists and to the festival. And they're like, no, no, we're on, we're on until the city cancels us. We're on. And then Friday. So now it became this weird thing where I was like, okay, I just want to get it over with. I wasn't even celebrating it. I was like, okay, is this a health thing? Should I even take the baby? Should I take my husband? Should I just go and do this and come back? We're not even going to have buyers at the screening. Are the distributors showing up? And then that Friday, I I was delivering like a, a gift to somebody and somebody texted me and said, I'm so sorry about South by. And I was like, shit. And so I went to the news and I saw that and I just drove myself home and I don't know. It was, it was a very, very rough, like four to six weeks. Also because the festival wasn't really talking. Cause I think they were as shocked as we were because the right. city canceled it on them. Mm-hmm. They just got screwed. Like, I mean, if there were Tribeca or there's some, it's just, they didn't have enough time. So they had already spent the money. The banners were all over Austin, everything. So it's not the, it just, the timing really. I mean, it was, it was a, a real thing. We had, yeah. I mean, South by was a big, big cancellation. I think it was a stream of like a cancellation of a bunch of other events and stuff. It was kind of the, the, the thing that solidified what made it. So, you know, for so many others. 
Yeah. But then a week later, I mean, everything was good. At that point, we were obviously angry and stuff. But like, I think a week later, it obviously seemed like the right thing to have been done. Yeah, of course. Did they offer you anything with the Amazon like screening? Um, so we were told uh, about the offer at the same time as the press went out and we weren't really given a solid answer on in terms of what the screening fee would be. We were just told we were going to get a screening fee, but we would only know what it is once we opted in. Mm, that's um, but interesting. We were, but we were also guaranteed that because it's going to be no paywall, um, that it would violate any U.S. premieres. And our sales agents were like, yeah, it's going to violate. Like the film being available for free for 10 days to anybody, not even having a Prime account, just an internet connection in the U.S. It's mm. not going to. So we obviously declined. Um, and uh, my guess is Amazon probably offered them a certain amount of money. And so they needed to know how many people opted in before they divided the pot. That's right. my guess. Most, I think you're probably right. Yeah. So, um, so that was hard. Uh, it's, it was just hard because we weren't able to get, um, I think at that point, all the filmmakers were thinking about themselves. Right. And they were like, Oh, we should do my immediate instinct was to do a giant screening in LA. But then I was like, by the time I, I, I organize something and galvanize people, even that's going to get canceled. And I, I'm going to put people in like the harm's way and why? No. And even now it's a situation where it's like, we have a possible screening date end of September, but you know, I just, I, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure. Like I can build like a theatrical around it myself. But I, again, it's like now we won the women in film finishing fund award. Right. So I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm one of two people who's gotten it twice. And this would be again, a big celebratory moment that I have money in the bank to do this series, like a, do a theatrical for the film. But my hands are tight. Would you consider doing virtual cinemas? I mean, I would. I just, um, I think we, so we're in talks with, uh, I can't say exactly who. So they, they are great uh, company in terms of partnering on community engagement screening. So like think like the Roxy in San Francisco or the Montclair, like old cinephiles places all over the U.S. And so I'm thinking of a hybrid where I partner with them. Plus like, even if, so my thinking is, even if I get, so before if I was going to show the film in 15 theaters and sold out, now if I partner with 45 theater screens, but it's like 30%, I'm still getting the same eyeballs, right? So that's how I'm thinking in a safe manner if I'm doing a 30 to 50% occupancy. I mean, 25% is what they're doing actually. Then maybe I just try and partner with multiple people and now we get newer audiences because we would have been screening in sort of the Lemleys and the IFPs and the Angelicas of the US, but maybe now we're at like an AMC or a Regal where people are just new people are going to watch the movie. So that's the hope before we put it on a VOD platform. So where do we stay tuned to find out where people can see the film when it is available? Um, so at I'll meet you there. So I L L and then meet you there. The film uh, on Instagram and Facebook is where you would um, be able to find the film. And then my handles I already shared with you. It's just at Aram P Bilal, I R A M P B I L A L. How about you, Anthony? If people want to check out the rest of your work, where can they find you? It's my website, ACKUHNZ.com. Wow. Talk about a journey to getting your film made. I mean, losing the funding twice and then having to pick it back up and do it later just to get into South by and have the rug pulled out from under you. I mean, all the trouble they went through <laughs> during production, all those amazing stories about, um, you know, going into production with only 25% of the funding for the movie. 
um, you know, going into production with not all of your locations booked, but finding them and getting in there and making it all happen and then getting it into South by. Oh, wow. Well, there's some actual good news on that because uh, Aram just emailed and said that uh, as of this recording of the podcast, which is just releasing here, uh, it, this is actually premiering now at the Bentonville Film Festival um, on August um, 14th, which is just a couple of days from now um, when we're releasing this film. And Bentonville, it's a great festival, actually, in the middle of, it's in Arkansas, seems like a small town, but it was started by Gina Davis. It's a great festival that I'm, I'm super into on the rise. They're all about um, LGBTQ filmmakers, female filmmakers, really filmmakers from underrepresented communities. And dude, in 2018, 87% of their films received some form of distribution. So, yeah, honestly, it's a great, it's almost like, I don't think it's a blessing because, you know, South by is a big festival and it's a big tier. And obviously they put all that work into getting into South by and the recognition, but I think that they're ultimately going to be okay because this is another great avenue for this film. It's yeah, it sounds great. I've been hearing a lot about that film festival. Um, I believe we're talking to another filmmaker, uh, on another episode, um, who's into that film festival as well, who got into that film festival previously and went there and had a great experience from what I understand. Um, so that's, that's great for them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. thank goodness. I mean, it's a little bit of a bright spot, right? Like, cause yeah. it just, it feels, but I do have to say, Aram, she's, I'm so, such a fan of hers now. I think, you know, that woman is definitely tenacious. Like she's going to make films come hell or high water. And I don't think, you know, I don't think a few setbacks are going to stop her at all. Okay, and that's the takeaway here. You know, we do these kind of quick wrap-ups with you and me at the end of these to kind of talk about takeaways, and I think that is it. You know, it's so much of the time it's about this, especially with independent feature films, it's about this filmmaker who's going to make it happen come hell or high water, which she did. You know, she talked about working on this film for 10 years in the making, but she made it happen, and she did it with a you know, I think uh, ultimately a joy and a charisma that feels magnetic, you know, during the conversation, you are completely engaged with her and, and you want to hear her stories and you want to see where they're going. And I think that certainly helps her as a director, but also helps her as a producer. Yeah. I mean, takeaway again, very personal story. You know what I mean? This is something that she identifies with, that she believes in. I, I think that's essential. Like, you have to do that, especially early in your career. Well, I'm super excited for them. Uh, oh, the one last uh, one last thing I do want to say is, you know, I did uh, I spoke with the cast, uh, and we'll be releasing that as a mini-episode where we speak with the cast and hear their experience on the film as well. Um, and my takeaway from hearing both from her and the cast is just how important casting is because we have a wide range of experience in that cast. There was one uh, woman who this was her first feature film and then obviously a couple other actors who have done dozens of movies and TV shows and every single one of them said the same thing from the time they got on the very first moment they got on set they felt connected they felt um, they didn't have to do a, a big rehearsal process because they instantly felt each other's energy and they felt the connection and I think part of that comes down to her directing obviously but also part of that is casting and how important how important casting is and can be filmmaking is a collaborative experience and so is this podcast 
Follow us on Instagram at framework underscore productions for upcoming episode announcements and leave your questions in the comments for our future guests. The first 10 commenters are immediately entered to win a monthly prize. Please take a second to subscribe so you know about the future episodes and leave a review. It really does help us. For more information about today's guest, visit us at frameworkfilm.com for visuals, diagrams, and more. IFG is a community, and we want to help you in your filmmaking process. Hi, I'm Alan Cordell. I'm a filmmaker in Los Angeles, California, and I make stuff that's weird and sunny, and I'm reading the credits. IFG is produced by Framework Productions and directed by James Allardyce. It's produced by Matt Mundy, edited by Audrey Ray McHale, and hosted by Stephen Pierce. The music is by Glassboy. Find his music on freemusicarchive.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First, we wanted to thank you, our listening community, and our wonderful guests, learning so much together along the way and continuing to learn, sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends, and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about. Which also brings me to my second point. In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film, Heard, H-E-R-D, Heard, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Heard. You can pre-order it on Apple TV, and of course, do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically, we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's H-E-R-D dot F-I-L-M, herd.film as well. Thank you again, and be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.